Let's begin Genesis chapter 41. Um, and let's just read from verse 47 uh, to kind of um, pick up the context and the, the, the storyline of where we're at in Joseph's uh, situation. It says that in the seven plenteous years, the earth brought forth by handfuls. And he, that is Joseph, gathered up all the food of the seven years which were in the land of Egypt. And he laid up the food in the cities, the food of the field which was round about every city, laid he up in the same. And Joseph gathered corn as the sand of the sea, very much, until he left numbering, for it was without number. And unto Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came, which Azanath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bare unto him, the wife that had been given to him by Pharaoh. And Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for God said he, has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. Again, Manasseh means forgetting. And the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. Ephraim meaning fruitful. And so the seven plenteous years uh, that were in the land of Egypt have ended. Uh, what we know about Joseph thus far in, in his um, passage, his section of Genesis, is we know that he loves God and that he is called according to God's purpose. God has a plan that he had laid out many years ago to Joseph's great-grandfather Abraham, wherein God told Abraham that his descendants would be slaves in a land that was not theirs for 400 years or for four generations. And so God's plan way before Joseph was even conceived was that the nation that would come out of Jacob would be in the foreign land, in Egypt. And so God's purpose is that he's going to bring his people into the land of Egypt. Now Joseph is a part of that purpose. He's called according to that purpose. Now we know one of our favorite verses in the Bible, in the New Testament, Romans 8, 28. It says that we know that God works all things together for good to them that love God and to them that are called according to his purpose. And so we see Joseph, a lover of God, called according to his purpose. And where we resume in the study, we see that God has worked all things together for Joseph's good. The dreams that he had when he was only 17 years old, those were what we would maybe think of as a good thing. They were positive in Joseph's life, a point of rejoicing. But then from there, he was sold by his brothers and brought as a captive, a foreigner, and he was traded as a slave in Egypt. And you would think that that would be a bad thing, but God used it, being placed, Joseph was, in Potiphar's house, and they're learning the agriculture and the ways of the land to make it produce. God trumped it and worked it together for good. Well, then Joseph was lied about, and he was thrown into the prison system. Again, something that you would think, well, this is very bad. This is not a good thing happening in Joseph's life. But all things work together for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. And so God, being with Joseph in the prison, raised him and elevated him to a place of prominence there, and there he learned not only the mindset of a criminal, but he learned methods of interrogation, which are going to become extremely useful in things going forward for Joseph, even in the study that we have tonight. And he also learned how to run a government agency, something that he would need that he didn't even know, God using it for the good. 
So God taking his dreams, taking the sale of himself into slavery, taking the lie that led him into prison, and then using even the events that happened, and God threw it all into the mix and worked it for the good, as we saw last week, Joseph then elevated, interpreting the dreams of the Pharaoh, and in one morning, Joseph became the prime minister, the president, as it were, of the entire land of Egypt. The dreams of the Pharaoh showing, revealing that there would be seven years of of plenty, fruitfulness, followed by seven years of famine, and then Joseph giving counsel to the Pharaoh that during the seven plenteous years, take a 20% tax of everything that is harvested, put it in the cities and granaries, and save it up for the years of famine. And Pharaoh placed Joseph over that plan. And thus we read in the passage that we started with tonight, the seven plenteous years are over. Now I find that amazing because all the Bible says about those seven glorious years where the land was just producing abundantly, where the stock market was up through the roof, where people were making money hand over fist, it tells us that the stores were filled, the affliction was forgotten, The fruit came out of the affliction that Joseph had suffered in in, in the last part of his life, and that's it. For seven plenteous years, that's all the Bible has to say. It's summed up in those short verses that we read. I think it's ironic, and it's kind of a microcosm of the Christian's experience, isn't it? I mean, we long for the seven fruitful years, don't we? And we go through the affliction of whatever's bringing us around or bringing us to there. And then finally those days come and it seems like they go by so quick and so little happens, even though they're fruitful, they're abundant. It's interesting, isn't it, that when things are going so well for us, it seems like so little progress really is made. It's in the affliction that the most work is done. It's kind of like the summer. It just whizzes right by. We labor through winter to get there and then it comes and it's gone. Seven years of plenty, they come and then they disappear. But what Joseph tells us at the end of those seven years, he just puts a big stamp on it that just says, worth it. Everything that he had gone through, all the toil, all the trouble, all the pain, the education, the learning, the stretching, he would say concerning all of it that all of it was worth it. God has caused me to forget the affliction that brought me here, and God has made me fruitful through it. It's worth it. And I think that's an encouraging word, because I know that some, some of you, some of us here tonight are going through it in our seasons of preparation. But know this, that if you hang in there and you wait and see what God does and how he uses it, you'll look back. A day will come when you will look back and you will say, it's worth it. It was worth it. It was worth every minute. It was worth every blow. It was worth every sleepless night. It was worth every ounce of pain. Every, everything was worth it. Well, seven years of plenty fold into seven years of famine, verse 54. And it says, And the seven years of dearth began to come, according as Joseph had said. And the dearth was in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. And when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said unto all the Egyptians, Go unto Joseph, whatever he says to you, do. So Joseph had been appointed over it, now Pharaoh, delegating this responsibility to Joseph, now points the people to him. And the famine was over all the face of the earth, and Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold unto the Egyptians, and the famine waxed sore in the land of Egypt. And all countries came into Egypt to Joseph for to buy corn, 
because that the famine was so sore in all lands. So word spreads quickly that there's an abundance in Egypt, and so people not only from Egypt but from foreign lands come now to Joseph in order to purchase and buy to sustain themselves. Now, all of this part of God's plan, because we're about to hear that the famine reached as far as Canaan, where Jacob, Joseph's father, and his brothers are there residing. Now, as God had worked all things together for good for Joseph, he is about to now work all things together for good for Jacob and for his sons and for the others that still have yet to see the fulfillment of God's purpose and all that's going on in their situation. And so it tells us now in verse 1 of chapter 42, it says, Now when Jacob saw that there was corn in Egypt... Jacob said unto his sons, why do you look upon one another? And he said, behold, I have heard that there is corn in Egypt. Get you down there and buy for us from thence that we may live and not die. And Joseph's 10 brothers went down to buy corn in Egypt. But Benjamin, Joseph's brother, Jacob sent not with his brethren, for he said, lest peradventure mischief befall him. Now, you'll recall that Jacob had two wives and two concubines, which were servants of his two wives, the maidservants. And Rachel, being the favored wife that Jacob loved, has now passed away, but she only had two of the 12 sons that were born to Jacob of the four, those two being Joseph and Benjamin. And now Jacob thinking that Joseph is dead because of the lie of his brothers, doesn't want to send Benjamin with those other boys because there's a suspicion in his mind that mischief might befall him as well. And so it says that the sons of Israel came to buy corn among those that came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan, and Joseph was the governor over the land, and he it was that sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came, and they bowed down themselves before him with their faces to the earth. Now this is phenomenal. The first thing that we see in the opening of the chapter is we see that Jacob hears a word, a rumor comes into his ear, that there is now grain, there's corn, there's provision. There's an opportunity for survival that exists beyond the borders of the land in Egypt. And he sees his sons looking at one another, knowing that this is true. And he asks the question when he perceives and puts all this together. And he says, why is it that you guys look at each other? And there's almost that there's a hint of suspicion. That when it comes to the fact that it's Egypt where the corn is, these guys are just kind of staring at each other. You see the first hint of guilt, perhaps, that's coming across them as they realize where they would have to go and where the paper trail of their deception and of their sin might lead. They're looking at each other, and Jacob sees this. It says, when he saw that there was corn, he says, why are you guys just looking at one another? And then he says he sends him, and then the second line of suspicion is that he won't send Benjamin with them. He suspects that there's foul play somewhere in here, though he doesn't know what it is. Now, I love the fact what it tells us in verse 6. It says that when Joseph's brethren came, it says that they bowed down themselves before him with their faces to the earth. Listen, it may take 22 years. But when God tells you something that he's going to do in his life, that's something that God tells you is going to come to pass. 
When Joseph was 17 years old, God gave him a dream that his brothers would one day bow down to him. It was that very dream that caused all the trouble and toil in his life. Now at the age of approximately 39, Joseph, standing there, unrecognized by his brothers, sees the fulfillment of that dream as it comes to pass. If God has to bend natural law in human government, he will cause his word to come to pass. That's true primarily, first of all, of anything that's written here. All scripture given by inspiration of God. Everything that God has said will come to pass exactly as he stated that it would. But it's also true concerning the promises that he gives to us uniquely and individually as it concerns his purpose for our lives. What God says he's going to do, God is going to fulfill it even if it takes way longer than we expect. I'm often amazed at the gap of time that exists between the promise that God gives and the fulfillment of that promise. God's showing us ahead of time what he's going to do, but here, the fulfillment of it. It says that Joseph saw his brethren and he knew them, but he made himself strange unto them and he spoke roughly unto them. And he said unto them, from whence come ye? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph knew his brethren, but they knew him not. And Joseph remembered the dreams which he dreamed of them. And he said unto them that you are spies. Now, this is amazing what's happening here. Now, Joseph goes into um, kind of uh, this, this, this mode now of interrogation. He sees his brothers. He recognizes them. He knows that they don't recognize him. And he wants to know primarily if these guys are changed, if these are the same guys, the same men that sold him into slavery in their cruelty. And he wants to know if they're still the same as they used to be. There's other things that he wants to know too. He wants to know if their father Jacob is still alive. He wants to know if his brother Benjamin is well, where he is and what state he's in. And did they do to him out of jealousy what they had done to him? in selling him as a slave. And he wants to know what's the state of Benjamin. He knows that Benjamin is not with them. And so Jacob, I'm sorry, Joseph now begins using these means of interrogation on these guys to try to extract information from them. And he starts by speaking roughly and by bringing accusation against them. If you want to get someone to start talking, the first thing you should always do is just accuse them of something. Because anytime you accuse someone of something, even if it's a false accusation, they're going to give you truth because they're going to want to negate the lie. They'll give you something. And so he speaks roughly to them, though rough is not what's in his heart, as we will see as the story unfolds. But he wants to know where these guys are at, and so he does it in a very wise way. He begins by giving them this accusation that you are spies. And so he says, you are spies and to see the nakedness or the vulnerability of the land you're come. And they said to him, no, my Lord, but to buy food are your servants come. We're not here for any malice reason. We just want to provide for our families. We heard that there's food here and that you're the one that we needed to come to. We're here with money. We're, We're not spies. And so now they begin to give Joseph what he wants. It says that they said, verse 11, that we are all one man's sons and we're true men. Your servants are not spies. True men. Really? (laughs) You'll sell your brother into slavery, you know? (laughs) Lie to your father about it, dip his coat. But you're true, you know, sort of. We're true today. And he said unto them, nay, no, but to see the nakedness of the land you are come. So he reinforces his accusation of them. 
And they said, your servants, they give more information, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is not. Now, they don't say that one is dead. They just say one is no longer. That's the word, the words that he uses in the Hebrew language. And Joseph's like, thank you very much for speaking of me in such kind and affectionate terms, that I am just one that is no longer. But he finds out the first things that he wants to know. His father is alive. His brother Benjamin is back home with his father. And for all that he knows now, he is well. And so now Joseph said unto them, verse 14, that is it which I spoke unto you, saying that you are spies. So he confirms it now the third time that this is his uh, feeling and the way that he would deal with them. And he says in verse 15, hereby you shall be tested by the life of Pharaoh. In other words, on Pharaoh's life, meaning Pharaoh will die if what I say doesn't come to pass, which that's obviously not going to happen. It's pretty sure. He says, you shall not go forth hence except your youngest brother come here. I'm not letting you leave the land of Egypt. You will be imprisoned until I see Benjamin. So send one of you and let him fetch your brother and you shall be kept in prison that your words may be proved whether there be any truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, he says it the second time, surely you are spies and the penalty for spying would be that they are death. And so the second enhanced interrogation method that Joseph now uses on his brethren, not just the accusation of uh, his, um, their guilt, but now the burden of proof is on you to show whether or not is everything all right. Should we pray? Let's just pray. Father, we just commit this, this whole... Uh, night to you, Lord, and all things going on, and we just pray for for uh, for power. We pray for wholeness. We pray for health. We pray for strength, and uh, we ask for your grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for hearing us, Lord. And so he tells them that the burden of proof is on them, and under the penalty of death, that they must prove that they're telling uh, the absolute truth. And what he really wants to know in this is if these guys uh, are changed. And so it tells him, verse 17, that he put them all together into ward uh, for three days. And so then Joseph, verse 18, said unto them, on the third day, he said, this do and live, for I fear God. So he lets them sit in prison for three days, which can have an amazing effect upon a person's uh, conscious and their psychological well-being. And then he says, this is my offer to you, verse 19, that if you are true men, then let one of your brethren be bound in the house of the prison, and the rest of you go carry corn or grain for the famine to your houses. But here's the condition, verse 20. He says, bring your youngest brother unto me. I want to see Benjamin. And so shall your words be verified, and you shall not die and it says that they did so, or that is, that they agreed to the condition that Joseph placed upon him. Now, Joseph wants Benjamin. And we don't know if perhaps it's just that he figures he has a place for Benjamin, that there's nothing left in the land of Canaan. He had said that God has called me for, to forget all of my father's house. And he's just thinking, I'll just have Benjamin come down here. I'll set him up real nice. And they can fend for themselves back up there in Canaan. If these guys aren't changed, I at least want Benjamin. And I'll figure out a way to get him down here. You know? Or he's thinking that maybe these guys are so crooked that having Benjamin here is the only way to ensure his safety. 
But either way, he's going to go through this whole process of things and he's going to bring Benjamin down. So he wants Benjamin there and he says, the other 10 of you uh, can go, one of you will stay and they agree. Now, I love this part, verse 21. It says that they said one to another and it's going to be in the Hebrew language. They're speaking amongst themselves and they don't know that Joseph understands what they're saying. And they said this, they said, we are verily guilty. And Joseph hears this concerning our brother in that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us and we would not hear or listen. Therefore, is this distress come upon us? Now, Joseph is hearing things that he didn't know, that they, they understand, they heard. And Reuben answered them, verse 22, saying, Spake I not unto you, saying, Do not sin against the child, and you would not hear. Therefore, behold, his blood is required from us. In other words, all these things are happening. The distress, and now these issues, all of this is because you guys didn't listen to me. Again, Joseph learning that Reuben was planning to deliver him out of their hands. He didn't know that before. And in verse 23, it says, And they knew not that Joseph understood them, for he spoke unto them by an interpreter. And then, overwhelmed by emotion, it says that he turned himself around from them and wept and returned to them again and communed with them and took from them Simeon and bound him before their eyes. So overcome now, overwhelmed with emotion, some of it because he sees the work of conviction. He sees conversion happening within their hearts. He hears that they heard the cries. It all floods back into him, the anguish of his own soul that he experienced while he was there in that pit and they weren't listening to him. He hears that Reuben argued with them and that there was toil in their hearts because of it. And as he begins to weep, he chooses one of them. Amazing that he chooses Simeon. Later on, Simeon's going to be called by his father an instrument of cruelty. And maybe Simeon was, you know, just a little bit harsher on Joseph at certain times in his life. But he says, you, you know, and he takes Simeon and he puts him in and he's going to have to wait now and rot in the prison while the other 10 go. But I love this verse here in verse 21. I think it speaks to us tonight. Uh, I want to spend uh, the, the last few minutes of our study tonight talking about uh, this issue of the guilt that these guys are carrying because of the sin that they committed so many years previously in bringing Joseph down uh, to there. This is a big moment in the future of God's people when they just simply make this confession that we read in verse 21 where they just say that we are guilty. And that's huge. They sit in a prison for three days and they, after, after that whole thing, they're just thinking about all of it, processing it all, talking amongst themselves, and they say, we are guilty. And that's huge. They don't blame Jacob here. They don't say, well, if Jacob hadn't favored Joseph then we wouldn't have been moved to be jealous of him and then to sell him as a slave. They're not blaming Jacob for it. They're not blaming Joseph for being a dreamer, a boaster, for being arrogant, for being proud, and for being annoying. They're not saying, well, if Joseph had just kept his mouth shut, if he could have just stayed with his pretty little code up there, that's not what Joseph is hearing as they're talking to one another. They didn't make excuses for their sin. 
by simply just saying, well, we were young. And if we just had been a little bit more mature, or if we knew now or then what we know now, then we never would have done what we did to Joseph. But in our immaturity, we just made such stupid news. They don't say any of that. There's no blaming. There's no excuses. They own in themselves the guilt for what they did. And they say, we are guilty. And they come under, they allow the conviction of their own actions and their own offenses to to lay its full weight upon them. And so they experience this guilt. The word guilt in the Hebrew language, in the English language, it means feeling a sense of responsibility or regretfulness for perceived offenses, whether they are real or imagined. That's what guilt is. And these guys are owning it. They're owning their responsibility for the sin, the offense that they committed against Joseph all of those years previously. Now, guilt is a very interesting thing, isn't it? Because it's invisible. I can't take guilt and, like, throw you a ball of it. I probably could hurl some of it at you with my words, you know. And I might before the study's over. It's not intentional if I do that, you know. But guilt is not a tangible physical thing. It takes place in the realm of our conscience. And our conscience, again, it's that thing inside of us. It's that place where we sense right or wrong inside of us. Hence, we often talk about guilt in the, in the phrase. We say that that person has a guilty conscience because that's the place where guilt takes hold. It's where it takes root. And guilt is an extremely powerful emotion or thing to have possessing you or to have holding you within your life. Notice the word that they use at the end of verse 21. They say, this distress has come upon us. And and I find it interesting because there's a play there on it because they say that we weren't sympathetic of the distress of Joseph's soul when he was asking for, for help in the pit. And now this distress has come upon us. That's an amazing thing that guilt does to us, is what guilt does is there's a transferring of the distress. In other words, what guilt does when it gets into the life of a a human being is it takes the same distress that we caused when we sinned, and it immediately puts the same weight of that distress upon us. We're experiencing this distress because we caused that distress. And so they're owning the fact that this guilt has gripped them and that it's causing this distressful emotional reaction that's within them. Understand that guilt is an emotion that comes from God. God made it. It was intended by God to be a natural mechanism of determining right and wrong. It's part of the way that God lets us know that there is a God and that we're more than just animals. He's given us the ability to, when we do something that's outside of the boundaries of what's acceptable or allowable, that there's something inside of us in our conscience that tells us that we've crossed a line, that we've committed an offense, that there's something not right in the way that we're behaving or the way that we're thinking or the way that we're living. And God has designed that in his wisdom to be a prod that we might find a remedy for that guilt, and in searching for that remedy, we might find it in the only place that it exists. And so guilt is something that comes from God, but sometimes if guilt isn't dealt with the right way, or if that remedy isn't found, or if the sin is not acknowledged, it's excused, it's justified, or in some way pushed off on someone else, it's blamed on someone else, 
then that guilt resides within us and guilt there first or then will continue to grow. Now, an interesting thing about guilt is that guilt is the uninvited guest that comes to the party coupled with every sinful action. In other words, when we invite sin into our life in any capacity, the uninvited guest of guilt comes. And oftentimes we, we, we say to sin, we say, hey, come to my party. I want to let you in. I want to experiment with you a little bit. And sin shows up. And as sin comes and says, sin goes, you know, I've got, this, I've got this person that came with me to the party, but they really won't trouble you at all. They're very quiet. They're very small. They're very insignificant. They won't take up much space. And they're not going to eat anything. They're my guest. And, and, and it's really no trouble at all. But if you want me to come, this person's with me and they've got to come too. And so we say, oh, you know, no big deal. I can't really see them. You're standing in front. You're the bigger presence. I want you in my house. And so let them come in with you. And so we invite sin to the party and guilt comes along. And listen, as long as sin is in the house, guilt is very quiet. He just sits in the corner and you barely even know that he's there. He doesn't stand up. He doesn't rise up. He doesn't take anything from you. He's just there in the house, in the corner. But guilt has this strange thing. Is that he comes to the party with sin, but he doesn't leave once sin departs. In fact, guilt is the master squatter. Because guilt not only comes in with sin, but guilt never leaves even after we say to sin, I'm done with you, at least for today. Guilt hangs out. And you know what's amazing about guilt? Is that as quiet as he is while sin is present, as soon as sin leaves, he becomes an amazing chatterbox. He starts to talk. You're laughing because you know exactly what I'm talking about, don't you? All of a sudden, guilt starts to stand up and like an alarm clock begins to shout. And you know, he has a very annoying voice. It begins to gnaw on you very quickly. Guilt, what an amazing thing. He stays even after sin leaves. Notice how fresh guilt is in the mind of these guys even 20 years after the offense. 20 years after they sinned, the first thing that comes to mind after sitting in prison for three days is like, we know exactly why this is happening. And guilt is right there 20 years later. It's been sitting there in the house all of that time. And time will not erase it. A guilty conscience stays way, way longer than the sin does. Guilt stays way longer, way beyond the time that the family grows up and is gone. Guilt will remain. Guilt will remain in a person's life way long after the case has been dismissed, even if there's been acquittal. Guilt will stay way longer after a secret is, is, is passed away unknown by anyone else. Guilt still stays. Guilt still stays in the life long after water has been swept under the bridge for a long time. Someone said that unresolved guilt is like having a snooze alarm in your head that won't shut off. It's just constantly, constantly there all the time. The pain of guilt is an impressive one because what guilt is is guilt is like 5,000 grit sandpaper. Have you ever felt 500 grit sandpaper? 5,000 grit sandpaper? It's almost just like smooth paper. It's, I mean, really, it's just the smoothest thing. There's barely any, anything to it at all. And you could take 500 grit sandpaper, and you could just begin to rub it on your arm and your face, and you'd be like, yeah, I could do this forever. This is no problem. I love this. This, this feels good. 
This is exfoliating. This is opening up my pores. I, I can do this. I can handle this. But do you know what happens? Because guilt doesn't go away, because it's so persistent, because day after week after month after year it continues to rub, after a while there's an irritation. After a while there's an opening. After a while there's a searing. And guilt, like 5,000 grit sandpaper, will do more damage in 20 years of time than a hammer can do in a moment. The pain of guilt is an amazing thing what it does. People will do amazing and incredible things in order to try to cope with their guilt. People will turn to things like overachieving in their workplace or in their personal life to try to cope with the fact that there's guilt that's working on the inside that's causing this internal pain. Sometimes people will give themselves to you know, kind of silent penance in a way. They'll try to do more good and make up for what they did bad, hoping that somehow that will alleviate the guilt of their conscience. Sometimes in, a, in an effort to cope with guilt, people will crowd their lives with busyness, projects and hobbies and listening to uh, things on the radio, constantly having stimuli going in just so that they don't have to think about or listen to that voice inside the conscience that's saying, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty. And it will just go on and on and on. Sometimes people will do religious works, church things, charitable things, all trying to silence the voice, coping strategies for guilt. But guilt has an effect nevertheless. What does guilt do when it weighs upon a human life and it goes unresolved for a long period of time. Well, first of all, and you might even want to write this down, is that guilt will cause a human being and give them an inability to enjoy future blessings or even God's grace in their lives in the future. Do you know what's going to happen to these guys? We're not going to read it tonight. But when Joseph sends these ten brothers home, do you know what he's going to do? He's going to take their bundles of money and he's going to put it back in the sack of food that he sends with them. And when they get halfway home and they have to open up the bags of grain in order to feed their camels, they're going to find the money inside. And you know what they're going to do? They're going to go, we're dead meat. This is awful. This is terrible. They're going to even say, what is God doing to us in all of this? Listen, you were just blessed. You just walked away from Egypt with the most valuable commodity that exists in the planet Earth. You have food right now when no one else has food and you got to keep your money. That's the grace of God. That's the goodness of God. But because of the guilt they have over what they did 20 years ago, they can't even enjoy the blessing that's been laid upon them. Amazing. That's what guilt does to us. It was Shakespeare who said in his play, King Louis VI, he said that suspicion always haunts a guilty mind. And that's exactly what happens to the brothers. It's what happens to us. Guilt takes away our ability to enjoy the blessing and the grace of God in the future. Another effect that guilt has on people is that it causes actions of self-retribution or self-punishment. We try to punish ourselves in order in some way to cause guilt to go away. We think if we hurt ourselves or we deny ourselves in some way that then guilt will leave us. There was one study done in which college students were made to feel guilty and then they were given the choice of free items that they could get for their participation in the study. And the students who weren't made to feel guilty chose movie DVDs and music downloads as their free gift while the ones who were made to feel guilty chose school supplies instead. They thought, well, you know, since I've done this thing wrong, I better at least take the lesser prize. You know, this idea of self-retribution. 
Sometimes in this day and age, we, we, we encounter people that cut themselves. They're called cutters. And they make, a, they make a, a passion out of making themselves bleed in some way, scarring themselves. And when asked, why is it that you do these things, the vast majority that are honest, not, will not say, well, I do it because it's a trend and I like the way scars look on my arm. But in all honesty, they'll say, because the pain that I can cause myself physically will eclipse the pain that I'm feeling internally and it brings a certain satisfaction. Sometimes the weight of guilt that it lays upon us will cause us to do things that even harm ourselves, hoping that somehow we'll feel better on the other side of it. Another thing that people do, effect that guilt has upon people, is that it will cause people, listen, this is interesting, is that it will cause people to dive deeper into their sin. Guilt will cause people to dive deeper into their sin. There's two very interesting passages in the New Testament. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, and he says this, he says, The Spirit speaks expressly that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, and listen, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. In other words, there's going to be a, a level of sinful behavior that exists in the last days that exceeds that which is normal in typical human beings. And Paul attributes the reason to this sinful behavior is an attempt to sear the conscience. He defines it another way to the church in Ephesus. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 19, he's talking about the Gentile that doesn't know God. And he says that they've given themselves over to uncleanness to work all lasciviousness, filth inside their bodies and in their, in their lives. And he says that they are past feeling. Do you see those words? I think it's in verse 19 of chapter 4. It says, who being past feeling. And that's that same idea is that they have done something to their conscience in order to make it so that they can no longer feel the conviction of guilt. I believe in some of the translations, it actually uses the word calloused, where it says that they have their conscience seared, is that they've calloused their conscience. What is a callous? A callous is a hard layer of skin that forms over a constant irritation. Those that play the guitar... We have calluses on the tips of our fingers. Why? Because they've been pressed so firmly and so consistently against the steel strings that push back. And at first it hurts so bad, but over time the body's natural response is to build calluses. And your fingertips become past feeling where you no longer feel the pain of those strings. And so some people, in response to the pain that conscience feels because of guilt, they'll dive deeper into sin in order to form a hard layer of callus upon their conscience so that the pain of the guilt is no longer there. Well, if I just give myself completely to this sin and this iniquity, then I'm no longer going to feel the pain of guilt, and therefore I've created or found the remedy. But you see, there's a problem with that. Because the conscience that God gave to every one of us is designed to do more than just feel guilt. See, it's in the level of the conscience that the human being experiences love. It's in the conscience where we feel tenderness that goes beyond just the surface of human relationship. It's where we feel excitement and affection and reward and intimacy and connection with other people. 
It's on the level of the conscience so often that we experience spiritual things, the presence of God, the hearing of God's voice. These things all take place on the level of the conscience. And when the conscience is seared because we have given ourselves to sin, then we not only don't feel the guilt and conviction of the sin any longer, but we don't experience the reality of deep life that God has intended for all of us to know. The conscience is important. Guilt is a big problem. There was one psychologist that was interviewed, and he said that if I could solve the problem of guilt in my patients, I would heal 95% of them instantaneously. And there's not one coping remedy that can resolve the problem of guilt, even religion. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 says this. It says, For the law, that is the religious things that were done in Old Testament times, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, listen, can never with those sacrifices, religious sacrifices, giving your money, giving your time, coming to church, teaching Bible studies, serving, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then, if it worked, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because that the worshipers once purged would have had no more conscience of sins. In other words, their guilt would have been taken away if those things were actually the remedy. But in those sacrifices, those religious things, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. See, the conscience isn't cleansed by religious works. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats would take away sins. All of the religious things that we can do can never satisfy a guilty conscience. In my studying, I came across um, uh, a memory, something I already knew of a tradition that they hold in Rome. And that is that pilgrims, people that go and visit uh, the Vatican, that they'll go to St. Peter's Basilica and they'll crawl up the some 510 steps up to the statue of St. Peter on their knees in hopes to obtain forgiveness for their sins. In fact, I have a photograph of it. And when you finally reach the top, what you find is that the statue of St. Peter, the second picture that you'll see, the feet of that statue are so worn. Do you know why they're worn like that? Because of over 1,500 years of people kissing those feet, it has literally weathered them down and taken all the detail out of the artistry of it. The weathering of those feet is the result of people's penance trying in some way, thinking that they can cover over for their guilt by climbing up 500 steps with bloody knees and then kissing a dirty foot of a statue that has been kissed by so many people you can't even see it anymore. Religious actions do not take away sin. There is no coping method that could take away the guilt that comes into our life because of sin. For those of you tonight that struggle with guilt, maybe even as a Christian you still have issues where guilt plagues you the things that you did every time something happens in your life immediately we come what comes into your mind is oh this is because oh boy i've sown and now i'm gonna reap every time a blessing comes into your life you're suspicious oh no this is this is this is because you struggle with guilt i've got good news for you tonight there is a remedy for guilt it's the only remedy that exists in all the world in all the universe and it works 100 percent of the time 
It is the blood of God's Son, Jesus Christ, that was spilled upon a cross. It is the only thing in the universe that has the power to remove guilt from your residence. I want you to listen to another passage from Hebrews. It's Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says here. After speaking of all of these Old Testament things that could not do anything for us, he says, but Christ being come as a high priest of the good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he has entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh, listen, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, listen, purge your conscience. Do you see that? Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. In other words, what religion couldn't do, what loud music couldn't do, what activities and busyness couldn't do, what overachieving couldn't do, what none of those things will ever be able to do, the blood of Jesus Christ, when it comes into our lives, appropriated by faith, can do something that none of those other things can, and it can remove the power of guilt and make it leave from our lives. It can take a deadened, hardened conscience that is past feeling, that has been seared by years of sin, and it can take a heart of stone, and it can make it flesh again. And those things that have died because of sin, condemnation, and guilt can now be resurrected because of the blood of Christ that ever lives to make intercession for it. The writer of Hebrews also says, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12, Quoting Jeremiah concerning this new covenant that you and I have through the blood of Christ, he says, God says, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In other words, what the blood of Jesus Christ does when it's appropriated into my life is that not only can it heal my conscience and remove guilt, but it puts me in a position where now when God looks at my life, he does not remember or call to mind the sin of my past. That's what the word remember means, because it's impossible for God to forget, right? I mean, if he knows all things, how can God forget anything? So certainly God knows the things that I did in my past, but when God says that I won't remember them, he's saying, I am not going to call to mind the sins of your past anymore. Here's what that means. Listen, this is important. Someone needs to hear this tonight. It means that when God is making decisions about your present and future, he is not taking into account sin, past, present, or future. Meaning he's not making decisions based upon things that you have done or even things that you will do. The sin is forgotten. See, I thought for the longest time, that the reason why God wasn't doing certain things in my life is because he knows I'm a screw-up and that I'm going to mess it up someday. So in other words, I could never be blessed like fill-in-the-blank. I could never have or expect that God would do blank in my life because God knows that I'm going to do this in the future, and so he's just withholding it now because why waste his time or his resources? But he doesn't do that. See, he doesn't deal with us according to our sins. He's made all things new. 
Psalm 103, verses 8 through 12. Listen to what the psalmist says concerning God. He says that the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us after our sins nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Do you know why God says the east and the west and not the north and the south? Because the east and the west never meet. You can go east forever, never stop. You can go west forever, never stop. You go north, you can only go so far, and then you're going south again. And if he cast our sins as far as the north is from the south, they would meet each other twice a year, depending on the speed they're going. But if they go east and west, they go that way forever. God says, I have separated you from your transgressions and your sins. He's removed them from us. They are no more to be remembered. That's what the blood of Jesus Christ does. It's the only thing in the world that has power to remove guilt. And it removes guilt because it's the only thing powerful enough to get to the level of our conscience and to set us free there. Now, if we continue in sin, we're going to continue to invite guilt in every time it comes. But when we repent and we come to Christ, He not only forgives our sin, but He cleanses us. 1 John 1, 9 says that if we confess our sins, that He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when guilt is present in your life, what do you do? You confess the sin to God. And the Bible says that not only is he faithful to forgive you, but he's faithful to cleanse. He removes, to cleanse is to catheterize. That's the process of separating you from your sin as far as the east is from the west. It's the process of removing guilt from you. You say, well, how do I do that? Because I have a hard time. Maybe God forgives me and I can accept all that, but I can't forgive myself and guilt doesn't depart from me even though I've accepted Jesus Christ. What do I do in that situation? Again, our last passage from Hebrews. I want to read from chapter 10, um, verse 19. The writer says this. He says, having therefore brethren boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, here's what we're to do, verse 22. He says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Do you hear that? Let us draw near. With a true heart. A true heart means honest. It doesn't mean perfect. It means that I'm coming to God in plain honesty and saying, God, this is what I am inside. God, inside, I'm addicted to things that don't belong in my life. God, in the truth and honesty of my heart, there are affections that I hold inside that are so contrary to your values and your person and your will for me. But in truth, Lord, this is what's in me. In truth, Lord, there are people in my life that I absolutely despise. I can't even hear their name without having my blood boil or my skin curl. Lord, in truth, these things are in me that shouldn't be in me. In truth, Lord, I'm a thief, I'm a liar, I'm a murderer, I'm an adulterer. I'm guilty, Lord, of egregious sins. And in all truth, Lord, I still love some of them. And if I was free to, I would commit them every day all the time. That's truth. And it says that we're to draw near to him with a true heart. God doesn't want the phony you. He wants the real you. 
God doesn't want the plastic religious thing that we put on in front of one another so that we look good. He wants the honest and true us. He knows what's there already. And he paid for it through the blood and the flesh of his son so that we could come to him and we let him in. Now, why is that important? Because when we confess like that and we come in truth, we're opening the door for him to come in and cleanse. He says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. In other words, we're taking God at his word and what he said that he accepts us because of his son. And we're coming to him with assurance that he's going to receive us there. Why? How? Having our hearts sprinkled, listen, from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What happens when we come to God that way? He starts to do his work on the inside of breaking the chains and setting us free. Not just from the guilt, but also from the sin that causes the guilt to come with it. So we're to draw near to God with full assurance that what he said he's provided through the blood of his son, that he will provide means of escape. You say, well, I'm there, but sometimes it still knocks on my heart. How do I deal with it when old sins still come to mind? Revelation chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. It says that they overcame him, that is the accuser of the brethren, They overcame him, how? By the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. What does that mean? It means that when old sins come to mind and the guilt of those things lays upon me, it plagues me. What I'm to do with that is I'm to come to God and I'm to say, God, this sin, I repented of it and your blood covered it. And Lord, now I just remind you again of that day that I repented of that sin and I lay it down at your feet yet one more time. And I want you to know this tonight in closing. That God does not want you, Christian. He does not want you carrying guilt. Now, if you're not a Christian, you should hope that you feel guilt. Because it's that very emotion and feeling of guilt that will drive you to the only thing that can remove that guilt, the blood of Jesus Christ. But if you know God, he does not want you carrying the weight of guilt. You know, some distance into Joseph's future from this point here where he sees his brothers, Jacob is going to die. And when Jacob dies, his brothers are again going to fear that Joseph will now seek revenge. And when Joseph finds out that they're afraid, it tells us in Genesis chapter 50, verse 15, it says this. It says that when Joseph's brethren saw that their father were dead, they said, Joseph will perhaps hate us and will certainly requite us all the evil which we did unto him. And they sent a messenger to Joseph, saying, Your father did command you before he died, saying, So shall you say unto Joseph, Forgive, I pray you now, the trespass of your brethren and their sin, for they did evil unto you. And now we pray, Forgive the trespass of your servants, of the God of thy father. And listen to what it says. It says, And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Do you know that when God sees guilt carried in your heart for things in the past that have already been forgiven, that's his heart, he weeps. He goes, Oh! I've forgiven it. I haven't thought about that. That's not even in my mind anymore. You're carrying that guilt. Well, we're done for tonight. Somehow I still went long. It's important that we give our guilt to God. It's also important, final thought, and the musicians can come. Please come. Everybody's waiting, hoping that you'll come. Come. (laughs) It's important that we set other people free from guilt too. 
where there are people in our lives that have done offense to us. We know they've done it. And we know that they know that they've done it. We have the opportunity to, like Joseph and like our father, to forward forgiveness and freedom of their guilt upon them. This happens in households. It happens among married couples. It happens among friends, neighbors. You know, any relationship it can happen. But someone who's offended you, are you able to go to them and say, hey, you know what, I know this happened in the past. And just in case you might be feeling guilt over that, I want you to know that it's completely forgiven. And when I look at you, I don't think about that anymore. That issue that came up, it's not like an elephant in the room when I'm with you. We have the power to break chains in people's lives by just giving them forgiveness. Amazing things happen when we find freedom from this powerful thing called guilt that accompanies the sin of our past. When guilt leaves, we're free to receive acceptance and confidence from God and identity from God. We're free to grow and change at the Spirit's pace. We're free from putting on a religious veneer and trying to be something that we're not. And we're free from past regret. And we're able to take our past failures to God and wait for Him to now work those things together for our good. It's an amazing thing. It's the power of the blood. Father, we just uh, thank You, Lord, for, for these truths. And we do ask You, Lord, tonight that You would let the blood of Jesus once again come. Oh, Lord, if it wasn't for Your Son, we would all be psychological basket cases covering over the leprous wounds of however many years of 5,000 grit sandpaper that wears upon the soul. And I thank you, Lord, that tonight I stand before you not perfect, not sinless, not anything in my own sense innocent, but forgiven, washed, justified, free. I pray for my brothers and sisters that are here tonight, Lord. And I ask for any that are carrying the guilt of the past. I pray for those first that don't know you, Lord. I pray that tonight they would receive the gift of the one who gave it all. That their sins might be washed away in that crimson tide. For you said, Lord, come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, They'll be white like blue. They'll be red like crimson. They'll be white as snow. Lord, and I pray tonight for any here that need that forgiveness, that cleansing, Lord, that they would come to you and find it. And I pray for any here tonight that do know you, Lord, but still sit under the condemnation of past sins. I ask that tonight, Lord, you'd help them to draw near in full assurance of faith. Oh, Lord, that they would receive from you the raising of your hand, they would see the smile of your face, that they would receive forgiveness and freedom at your hand. So we ask for these things tonight. We thank you for who you are, for what you've done. You were motivated by your love to do this for us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.